Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, this is Claire Armistead. And I'm Sean Kane from the Guardian Books team. Before we get stuck into today's episode with the winner of the T.S. Eliot Poetry Prize and Kevin Powers on his novel A Shout in the Ruins, let's take a minute to tell you about Guardian Jobs, which is sponsoring this episode of the podcast. As is hopefully clear from the podcast, we do mostly, often, well, I mean, some of the time, I think, Sean, enjoy each other's company. <laughs> What's your favourite thing about working with me? Well, <laughs> oh, that's I'm, a dangerous question. <laughs> I was thinking about this. And then I suggested how generous you are with your coffee runs. And then you got very, very offended. So um, my alternate suggestion is whenever I get very, very stressed, you're very good at calming me, oh, oh, sort of assuring me that it's not the end of the world. And you remind me where I am every day. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I tell you how to get into your own phone. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, Guardian Jobs can help you find your good company. It promotes a world of work where potential flourishes by connecting people with rewarding careers at like-minded organisations where values make a difference. It makes it easy to find roles that are relevant to your sector, location and seniority level. So you can trust Guardian Jobs to help you find a role where you can make a difference for yourself and your employer. And if you're a recruiter looking to attract a diverse candidate pool who share progressive values and are engaged with the world around them, trust Guardian Jobs to help you fill your vacancies with people who want to make a difference. So find your good company at gu.com slash good company. Now let's get on with this week's episode. Thank God we, have, we can stop pretending we like each other. <laughs> <laughs> the Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. And I'm Sean Kane. This week it's all about prizes and paperbacks. While you might listen to this show and hear us talking about wonderful books we really love, it might be a few months or even a year before you get around to reading it, and most likely in paperback. Today we're speaking to Kevin Powers, whose book A Shout in the Ruins comes out in paperback this week. But first, we are very pleased to be joined by the winner of the T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry. Claire, you were there this year when um, there were some readings of all the shortlisted poets on the weekend. Tell us about how the prize went this year. Well, it's it's an extraordinary occasion, which always happens at this time in the absolute dog days of winter, <laughs> and in, in which poetry lovers from all over the country flock to the Royal Festival Hall on London's South Bank. About 900 people on a Sunday evening. I find that so amazing. To hear 10 <laughs> poets reading poetry. And so it's this big, very solemn occasion, absolutely terrifying for the poets, because you, you can imagine they're not generally a very convivial bunch in thought. They're not used to, <laughs> they're not used to, to public performance. And then um, the following night, there's a big party in which they're told who actually wins it so it's so it's this sort of weirdly sacred occasion every year I think oh I'm not sure whether I want to go this year and then I do and I, and it's always wonderful mm. it's become a tradition that it's compared by the poet Ian Macmillan who always makes lots of jokes about um, imagined scenarios about the difficulties of getting by train from his hometown in the <laughs> north of England <laughs> anyway here he is introducing Hannah and an excerpt that she read at the Royal Festival Hall in London Sean, we mentioned in the first half the way that uh, the language that the poets are using 
puts the language of our politicians or our bureaucrats to shame. And I was chatting to one of the judges and we both agreed that what is interesting this year is the way that the poets are pushing at the envelope of form and that a number of the books contain long sequences and sometimes the book is simply a long sequence that makes up more than the sum of its parts, if you like. And it's very exciting to read Hannah Sullivan's three poems, which is just that, three long poems, three long poems in different settings, three long poems that take different looks at birth and death, the birth of a child, the death of a parent, that look back to Greek history, to Greek literature, and that somehow, the more I read it, the more it felt, the more incandescent the language became, the more it felt the language could light the room. It feels like a throwaway thing to say, but it felt like the language was so incandescent that at times the book almost caught fire. And that feels like it's easier to do in a short lyric poem and much more difficult to do in a longer poem. But in these three long poems, that's what Hannah does. And the poems are set in different settings And I believe the one that we're going to start with is set in New York. Hannah Sullivan and her book, Three Poems. Rosie used to say that New York was a fairground. You'll know when it's time, when the fair is over. But nothing seems to happen. You stand around on the same street corners, smoking, thin-elbowed looking down avenues in a lime green dress with one arm raised, waiting to get older. Nothing happens. You try without success the usual prescriptions, the usual assays on innocence, I love you, to the wrong person. I feel depressed, kissing a girl, a sharpener, sea urchin, juice cleansers, but the senses laxly fed are self-replenishing, fresh as the first time, so... Even the eventual sameness has a savour for you. Even the sting when someone flinches at I love you is not unwelcome, like the ulcer on your tongue wetted on the ridges of a tooth. And when he slams you hard against the frame, the poor ticked sallow bruise seems truer than the speed, the spasm with which you came. So nothing happens. No matter what you try, the huge lost innocence at which you aimed recedes. Like long perspectives, like the sky square at the end of fifth, whitening at dawn, unseen, as you watch the unlit cabs go by. The ten poets this year included only one who'd actually ever previously won it, and I think this is a sign of the way that the poetry world is is actually really refreshing itself at the moment. Yeah, well, there was a, it was ten books shortlist, and five of them were debuts, which is kind of amazing. And three debuts have won in the last three years. That's um, right, yeah. Which never really used to happen. And so this is the debut of debuts, really. It's Hannah Sullivan's collection, Three Poems which came from nowhere, as the chair of judges told you, Sean. Yeah, um, I spoke to Sinead Morrissey about it because um, I was sort of on news duty. And, yeah, she said that 
she hasn't really come from the usual avenues where poets usually come from because they usually emerge from a creative writing program and they end up sort of maybe trying out some poetry in small zines and pamphlets and poetry presses and then they'll have a collection come out and there'll be some sort of name for themselves in the industry before their collection comes out whereas her collection has just sort of come out and she's making a name for herself after the fact uh, which is really really interesting and I was uh, was looking around and she really has barely been published anywhere one of the poems had been published a couple years ago in one journal that I could find but that was it and that's kind of amazing. And what she has published was a, a book about revision. Yes, yeah, she did her whole PhD on the concept of revision, which I find really interesting, which then provoked a book about that. And then she sort of uh, endeavoured to embark on a new project about free verse. And this poetry collection is the result, which is kind of amazing that that's your way into writing poetry with such deliberacy this is my new project so having come from nowhere not having been on the performance circuit not knowing all all that poetry establishment who are there in their masses to Mm. to hear you read can you imagine how nerve-wracking that must (laughs) be then followed by sitting and waiting and hearing your name called in front of a a sort of slightly more select coterie of the same people nevertheless Hannah came in this morning bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and I began by asking her why she'd chosen that particular title three poems for the collection which seems incredibly blank um, when there are so many fantastic lines in the collection itself that's true I just have always enjoyed blank titles of poetry collections you know Tennyson's poems or Auden some poems I mean it's maybe just a more old-fashioned way of just describing what the contents are I did at one point wonder about calling it three something else to try to make the point that these were sort of hybrid documents in some ways three essays or something but I was glad I went with three poems people keep asking me if it's a reference to John Ashbury's three poems which of course is a book that I admire and know but it, it really isn't it's just the number three and the plural noun poems and it is indeed as, exactly as it says on the cover. It's three poems, yeah. long poems. It's a whole book. It's not a book length poem, but it's a book mm. in three parts in a way. Yeah. But they fit together really interestingly. The first one is is you as a young or a you. Mm-hmm. We have to have the air commas mm. in New York. Yeah, a you. I mean, the poem's addressed to a former self, and there are certainly aspects of my former self, you know, in that young woman. But um, there is quite a lot of fiction in the poem as well, and, and also sort of. In a transposition. I mean, I worked in a job in finance in a way in consulting, but that was in London, not in New York. You know, I lived in New York briefly at other points in time. Most of my time in the States was spent in Boston and San Francisco. Yeah, so there are things that are true and things that aren't, aren't true in that poem. It's probably the most fictionalized. When I was younger, I actually wrote a novel about New York, which I never showed to anybody. You know, it wasn't very good, but I think it was probably drawing on some sort of novelistic impulses. Um, and also that first poem is very much was influenced too by my reading of the Joan Didion essay Goodbye to All That. Which is about her relationship with New York. Yeah which has sparked I think a a pro-genre really of writers writing about you know leaving New York at the age of 30 or 35 whatever it might be you know bidding farewell to a period of time where you you know you arrive as a kind of ingenue in the big city and think you're going to make it and then you don't really and then you leave Um, which was never exactly my story because I never really lived there full-time but I spent quite a lot of time there when I was at graduate school in Boston. And that first section sets up two sort of modes in a way which mm. then run through it. One of which is innocence and the fact mm. that you can never get back to that place. Yeah. And the other thing is the so- the solipsism of youth in which you think you're doing everything for the first time. Yeah, I and mean, the solipsism and I guess also the sociability in a way. And there's 
line about the permeability of, of young people to other people. Yes, the solipsism is that you think you're the first to discover everything. The other, the, the more virtuous part of it, I suppose, is being at an age where you're more easily influenced, where you know things, memories are formed more easily. Um, things have kind of magnetic sort of resonance more easily. You know, the first time you have a cocktail in a fancy bar in New York means much more than the you know, hundredth time you, you do the same thing, um, where the world has a kind of luster about it. And there's a there's um, quite a um, a sense of people rushing around you rushing around in taxis mm, with in yeah. random encounters. Yeah. Some of some you meet an old an ex lover. Mm. Um, you meet an ex lover, and it, in a way, it's the most novelistic as well. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, as I say, I think that that some of these scenes in the poem were scenes that I had in a way written before in prose in my attempt to write a novel about really the same topic being very young in New York so that might be why we have this kind of or version as a prose text yeah I mean the, the third poem of the book is the only one that's really I would say autobiographical in the sense of in a very direct way and, and also uses the I pronoun you know much more than the other two drawing on my own personal experiences of my father dying and, and of giving birth and the the middle poem repeat until time has some aspects of my experience and some some stories about my life in America particularly in California but I think it is the you know the most abstract and philosophical. So it doesn't really have that novelistic mode. In the background of poems that's, that are very personal on one level, mm. are big historical events. And in the first one, you have the stock markets falling and the art market going to pieces while you're listening to Bowie in bed. <laughs> yeah. In the right. second one, you have the, the outbreak of World War II as refracted through Henry mm. James watching a boy in the fields and wondering what's going to become of him and then you have the testing of the first atom bomb in 1945 yeah, yeah that makes it sound crazily sort of ambitious um yes i have henry james waiting for the first world war to start i mean i think it, the poem is sort of interested in the relationship between kind of waste time and events or how, how do you know what an event is and um is an event only an event if it's something that's kind of singular and doesn't repeat or doesn't event you know have to be marked by non-repeatability and that's of course what people said about the first world war was the war to end all wars until it wasn't you know there's another war i mean i think that the one of the things that interested me about that story perhaps also thinking about sort of a lineage that includes Eliot, um is this you know famous quotation from oppenheimer that in fact is probably not what he really said you know i made shiva death the destroyer of worlds um it seems like he actually thought of that later and that you know what he said in the moment was something more colloquial. So I'm sort of interested too, I guess, in the relationship between events and people's ability to speak about them immediately. And you you, you have this sort of ambivalent attitude to repetition in history, mm. and you say that um, it's hard to say if there is progress in history. And yet, like, yeah. and I couldn't quite work out whether you are sad about that or whether you think that's a good thing. <laughs> um, I think everybody must be sad about. I mean, in a way, meliorism is sort of the faith that you have as a child. You know that you you gain more skills you get taller you become more competent you know life opens up with more possibilities for you as a child or as a teenager and then you hit some sort of age in your 20s or 30s where that isn't true you feel you into this into some declining pattern instead you know you can't run as fast as you used to don't feel as good when you get up in the morning you know you see the end so yeah I mean I I was interested in in my academic work I suppose I've taught courses on the 1910s and I've written a bit about Henry James and the First World War in my academic book about the destruction, and this is not a new idea at all, but the destruction of that idea of faith, of kind of Victorian idea in progress at the beginning of the First World War. And yet it, I think, remains a very, you know, an irresistible idea in many ways to all of us. You mentioned your academic career because mm. you have come really from nowhere as far as poets are concerned. Yes, yes. If mo- most poets, by the time they produce a first book, have yeah. been known 
for on the circuit reading aloud and also for pamphlets and things Indeed. and you haven't done any of that you've come through a completely different trajectory which is through yes. academia I mean, I, yeah, I have been fantastically lucky, really, to have my poems published at all. And I'd got to the point where I pretty much was thinking I would stop writing because it started to seem quite indulgent, especially having had children um, when I wasn't a published writer to be you know, taking time away from my sort of academic work, or my teaching to be trying to write poems. I mean, I'd written poems for a long time. Um, in my teens and early 20s, I did publish some poems in magazines. And I think then I moved to America. And there is a big gulf between the UK poetry scene and the American poetry scene and actually the whole complexity of just sort of sending poems to British magazines in stamps addressed envelopes and so on was quite beyond me but at that time I couldn't really recognise much kinship between the sorts of writing I was doing which at that point was quite cramped and sort of formal and what was taking place in American poetry which I was excited by but felt a very bewildering sort of landscape. So what what was taking place because one always hears about American poetry Mm. this schism between the very very academic and the performancy poetry. Is yeah, I, I don't think that I am able to give a, a really good kind of description of what was happening in American poetry, sort of circa 2000, or, you know, which is when I first went to America. Um, I was very influenced by a workshop that I took with Jory Graham that had a number of extremely talented writers in it. I mean, frankly, people that wrote far better poems than I did, you know, at that point, and much more expansive poems in longer lines. And I was writing kind of little short poems with very short lines that rhymed. And I just sort of couldn't seem to find a way to to get out of writing these little lyric poems that are about tiny fragments of experience, you know, to write about all of the things that eventually I sort of have found more of a way to write about, you know, what it's like to be a modern person living in a city or a suburb, consuming things that have kind of brand names, you know, reading news online, using Facebook. You know, for a long time I just couldn't think how you would put any of those things into a poem, those sorts of words even. So I stopped writing for a while and then I started again in my sort of early, mid-30s. And this is from the third section of the Sampit of Terrain, um, when the egg meets the whisk. Things slump, dirty themselves, become compound. Mould forms its spores on bread and sheep get shaggier. Cherry blossom settles on cars like sunroofs. Jumpers bobble. You know all this, the look of meat minced or raw or browning in the pan. The newborn baby's eye like a poster of the Aegean and how the iris tans, brindles, picks up its sunspots, spins colour like roulette, and yet you always forget, like the sand from Petra when the jar flies from the shelf, forgetting its lairs. So that introduces the idea of the newborn, and this is a Mm. section about the death of your father and the birth of your first child, Mm. all within this very, very compressed period. So your oldest son is now three years old or something? Yeah, he'll be four quite soon. Four quite soon. So this has all happened very, very quickly. Well, it did. My my father was somewhat ill for for quite a long time, but actually, you know, his final illness was quite, quite sudden. And I sort of learnt that he had been taken into hospital the same day that I found out I was pregnant, oddly. And you know, he died when I was 15 weeks pregnant. And then my first son was due to be born in January, but you know, like many pregnancies, he was very overdue. But then there was this strange sort of proximity of dates in that he, my father had died on August the 7th at 11 a.m. And then my first son was born on February the 7th, which was at 11 a.m., so exactly six months later to the minute, which clearly was not a likely, probable sort of outcome. And that seemed to put them you know, more dramatically somehow into relationship for me. I wondered. Uh, mm. I was wondering when I saw that about the August the fifth, nineteen fourteen. I mean, it's d- uh, two days out. Yeah, there, there's yeah, sort no, of da- there are all true, sorts right? of, of of sort of chimes and echoes. I always think it's a pretty bleak week that first week of <laughs> August for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, but I mean, also, you know, I'd never really been inside a hospital before my father was ill, and 
you know, I was he was in hospital in Oxford in the John Radcliffe, so I was visiting him every afternoon and, you know, also I was going to the hospital myself for antenatal appointments. So I felt during that six months or eight months, whatever it was, period of time, I was really in hospitals a lot. And then, of course, you get discharged. You, If you're lucky, you know, you go home, you've got a healthy baby, you don't go back to the hospital. So being in that world, you know, the world of the ill and the, the dying and the case of my father's ward but also of nurses and doctors and of lots of very very upset people you know grieving people people have just got very bad news that became alien to me quite quickly well thankfully yeah so that's also seems sort of closed period of time and I wanted to write about that and when I heard you reading that section the thing that absolutely rang out for me was the thing about odor (laughs) the odor of death and you just thought actually nobody's actually said that wishing hoping it won't smell <laughs> hoping right hoping that it won't be utterly sort of disgusting and, yes um, yes and that's also that's slightly a... similar to birth well it you'd think that I mean in, in a way of my experience of birth because I had two um, essentially elective cesareans I didn't want to have either of them but you know I wasn't in labor at the point at which I had them my experience of birth was very non-messy and very you know I didn't see the placenta the first time all of the things that I'd you know been to NCT classes and learned might happen all the sort of sloppiness and messiness and the, the kind of great human experience of birth that was, wasn't true for me because I just you know was pregnant the baby had no idea it was going to be born you know had an epidural or whatever an injection lay down on the table and then people did their things and then you know everything was cleaned up the baby was shown to me you know having had all the sort of gunk wiped off his face beautifully dressed with a little hat on whereas death was not like that and my father was going to go to palliative care and then became sort of too sick and he died in hospital but because it was more sudden I suppose it was a more physically you know involved process I mean there was there was more stuff it's interesting that you describe it like that because what you had a big hemorrhage which you talk about in the poem yeah but I suppose it was the other side of a screen from yeah from you. I had no idea I mean actually I had a more of a hemorrhage the second time when I already had the book that had been accepted but I was still revising it so some of the details in the scene you know, I was able to, to take from the second experience of kind of lying on the table and was listening more attentively the second time to the names of the drugs and that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess it's just one of those things. You, I did feel quite rough, but you don't really know when it's, you, when it's happening. You know, you don't feel any pain. I think a lot of women lose a great deal of blood in labour. Um, I think even in the hospital I was in, you can lose m- much more blood than is in your body and just have other people's blood put into you that that idea was very interesting to me that I ended up you know being transfused with someone else's blood and so was walking around I suppose for a few months with someone else inside me Um, I like that idea a lot I didn't you know introduce the poem like that when I was reading it on the stage I just said it was about birth and death yeah father's death and my son's birth but you know I think it is a poem that's about more than merely my own experience and that it's very largely about the problem of sort of entropy you could say in the natural world of of things becoming ordered systems becoming more disordered over time you know after I had children the complete sort of chaos that a toddler can wreck on a perfectly clean room you know in it almost it seems an instant became a sort of really troubling problem to me you know why is it when you buy a new car after six months it's not new anymore why is it that you know the blossom on the tree is beautiful but after a week it's just lying around you know in sort of moldy heaps on the car's roofs and on the ground Why, why can't that last for longer and have that sort of perfection maintained why do all perfect systems end up imperfect it feels like it was a very troubling problem for me in that poem and the question of how is it that you ever manage to get something like a baby you know a new and perfectly organized and highly complex and in a way sort of artificial or improbable entity arise in a world where basically everything is going to hell all the time and this ties in with the wishing something to be odorless presumably 
Yeah, it, right. I mean, I think there is a Clean. bit of a horror about yep. dirt and, and sort of mess and proliferation and disorder. Yeah. But also really grateful appreciation about the fact that even although that is the general law of things and it is what happens to all of us over time, it is actually still possible for new organised things, which might include new art objects, I suppose, as well as new people, all kinds of new things to come into being. You know, that beautiful new things can appear, even though the general tendency of the world is to, you know, lay waste. That is so interesting. So actually, you're an optimist. And I was thinking you're a pessimist. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to be, yeah. (laughs) Many congratulations again to Hannah, and Three Poems is published with Faber. We're back to talk about paperbacks and the hot topic of sensitivity readers who vet manuscripts for stereotypes, biases and problematic language. After this. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. One discrepancy between how we read books here at The Guardian and how a lot of you guys read at home is that we tend to pick up hardbacks a month or two before they even come out, whereas a lot of people will wait a few months or even a year for the paperback to come out. We get messages sometimes when we recommend books in hardback that readers find it frustrating that they won't be able to enjoy it for a while, either because they can't afford an expensive hardback or because they're annoying to read on the bus or because they just take up a lot of space. But whatever the reason is, we get it, and sometimes books deserve a little bit more love in paperback stage two. So Claire, we're going to be talking about Kevin Powers' A Shout in the Ruins. Could you just sort of talk a little bit about his first book? to introduce him a little bit. Yeah, he, he, he is um, an Iraq war veteran in another writer who came from nowhere and won the Guardian First Book Prize with um, That's right, Yellow yeah. Birds, which was, his, which was an amazing novel. And so we've all been in Guardian Towers really <laughs> waiting for this, this next follow-up. And I actually interviewed him at the last Hay Festival in May, which was when the hardback came out. And I have to say, I think this is a book that grows on people um, because I think it doesn't it doesn't yield itself up so obviously as Yellow Birds does. It's 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 set in it has um, various time frames following the American Civil War and in the nineteen um, fifties and nineteen eighties. But I would definitely go back to it and reread it at this stage. Yeah, I mean, um, there's so many paperbacks coming out in any one month, and just sort of in the next say three or four weeks or so I mean books that we've previously covered on the podcast uh, there's God Save Texas by Lawrence Wright which I I interviewed him on the podcast a few months ago Um, I'm actually taking the paperback home with me despite already having the hardback at home because the hardback is so big on my shelves I actually want to make a little bit more space (laughs) so I'm taking back the very slim paperback and uh, I'll give my uh, hardback to the Oxfam around the corner but there's also uh, Enigma Variations by Andre Asman who was on the show recently and who dastardly even though it was the week before he announced that he was going to do a, a, do a sequel a, a sequel of um, <laughs> To Call Me By Your Name he didn't actually tell us <laughs> I know what a rotter um, <laughs> there's also A Ladder to the Sky by John Boyne he came on the show a few months ago um, and then just a couple of other novels that I'm excited about in paperback I never read Julian Barnes's last novel The Only Story it got very good reviews so I actually would like to go and try it in paperback and The Adulterance by Joe Dunthorne, which I really love Joe Dunthorne. And I don't know why this one just completely missed me, but, you know, even 
people that talk and work and obsess over books every day like me still miss stuff um so i was quite pleased to see that it's coming out soon so i'll get that in paperback and one of the things that you can do at paperback stage is pick up on all those genre um series which get put out in quite expensive hardbacks Mm. because they do have fans who collect every edition and one example of this is is um, Nikki French's Frida Klein series which the eighth and final volume is finally out this month in paperback (laughs) I got to Thursday it's done by days of the week so I did Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday and I have Friday Saturday Sunday and Monday to read (laughs) and and it's just a lovely reminder that that now the whole series is affordable for me I will go back and get it see that's always the thing I find heartbreaking is when you're really invested in a series and you know it's it's always a lovely thing to be able to give as much money as possible to authors but you know when you're 20 books in and you're paying 25 quid for a hardback sometimes it's a little bit heartbreaking and it's a different thing isn't there there's the the sort of pleasure of ownership of a Mm. great big beautiful hardback and then there's the actual the joy of actually reading the thing yeah that's true being able <laughs> to fold it in half the same thing yeah. and I actually passed the stage of needing any more book furniture in my house <laughs> well with Kevin I mean there is a sense that he didn't really get very much attention for this this book when it came out in hardback certainly compared to the yellow birds which was quite a big sort of debut and there's this whole thing around that debuts sometimes get Sort of unfair amounts of attention and then it's sort of like second album syndrome the sort of second novel is always written off as slightly worse than the first well um, do, or, or it can be just different and people want yes, the same thing again. exactly and what kevin is too good a writer to do the same thing again yeah. he do, you know he still has war as his arena but he now treats it in a different sort of historical way whereas he was going back only a few years in the first one now he's going way back so hopefully he gets a little bit more love now that it's sort of out and accessible in paperback form. <laughs> well, Kevin came to speak with Richard Lee and he began with a reading from A Shout in the Ruins. One night they took a walk together and before they'd gone far, she pulled at Rawl's elbow to stop him. Why do you have a gait like a hobbled dog? They were near a clearing then and the clearing was dotted with cedar as it sloped toward a pond and creek that fed the river. They sat down in a spot of low grass, and he took off his hand-me-down moccasins. Nurse looked down at his feet. The moon was out, but clouds passed beneath it, turning the gold grass white and the cedars into thin shadows. Rawls was missing the big toe on both of his feet. The soles were rough and calloused and reached up toward the uneven scarring where the toes had been. Runner, he said. Who done this to you? Old man who owned us before, does it still pain you? Rawls whistled and smiled, not like it once did. I get sore a bit from walking, Henke. The old man did it himself. He caught me sneaking past the big house and knocked me on my backside, dragged me to a snake fence, tied my feet to the top rail, stood on my shoulders and gave him a whack with the hatchet. Nurse sighed and shook her head. What were you running for? You gotta ask? I was running to get gone. They had been still and quiet long enough that the common noises of the night returned. The night jar's solemn whistle, a fox scream in the distance, the world painted in shades of gray and lit solely by reflection. Hurt like hell at the time, said Rawls. I was such a little fellow he had to lift me off the ground part ways to get my feet tied to the rail left me hanging upside down till the next day. Nurse reached out and touched his ankle, massaged up toward his calf and down again, 
but you had your mama with you. Don't preach. And now, nurse asked, you ain't never worried she'll catch what's meant for you? Not likely. Master Bob doesn't have the stomach for it. He puts on like he does sometimes just for show, but I see these white folks coming. They never see me, but I can figure I'm pretty good now. Besides, my mama knows my nature. She knows any one of us might catch what's meant for another. You wouldn't miss her if something happened, nurse asked. Of course I would. He paused, searching for what seemed like an impossible arrangement of words. He said, I've been with her my whole life, and I already miss her. I missed her that whole time. I'm missing her right at this moment. I never had my mama with me that I recall. Don't know her name. Don't know if I favor her. I ain't saying it's the same, but I missed your mama before I heard you say that. Missed her like my own. Missed her like I'm missing you right now. He lay out in the grass and propped himself up on his elbows. He heard the creek go by and followed it in his mind. Down into the James, past the fall line, past the docks, and beyond the place of size at Lumpkin Slave Jail. Out into wide water, brackish and flat and a mile across. Out into the bay until its blue chop became the ocean, where it left behind the cypresses and cattails, and the land remained only as a misremembered dream. I understand, Rawls. I do, and I miss you too. Nurse kissed him, pushed his body deep into the grass. The woods grew quiet again on their behalf. Rawls decided he loved Nurse, and that perhaps his love for her was the thing that could not be taken from him. But he would not see her again for a good long while. So after a debut set in the heat of the Iraq War and its aftermath, why did you want to reach back to the Civil War? Well, it's interesting. In many ways, I think they're, the subjects are connected in my mind. Having grown up in a place like Virginia where this story is set uh, with the history and the violence present and immediate, but somehow abstract, you know, you kind of receive your understanding of the past through your education going to war and experiencing that firsthand, witnessing and, and participating in the kind of violence that can only really be produced by war, I returned home with a new context for the place that I was from. And that violence that I understood was under the surface, just really, you know, it emerged and, and it felt more immediate than it ever had. And it felt, you know, I felt an urgency to, to contend with Questions that I explored maybe on an individual level in the yellow birds, you know, I, I wanted to take a look at them more widely, how they affect an entire society and how that legacy works through. Oh, it really is explicitly returning to the roots of America's trouble with race. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, that's foundational. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. a, it's, an, it's a <laughs> built into the fabric of our country. And just as I, I, I wanted to, to figure out what what uh, responsibility I bore for my participation in Iraq, and I asked these questions through the character John Bartle in that book. You know, I have similar questions about my responsibility as a as a you know as a white Southern man, and and what does that mean for me today? And especially now that I have children, what will I tell them about the place where I come from and the 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 culture that shaped me in many ways? 
And that was, as you say, partly as a response to the violence you'd seen in Iraq, but was it also partly as a response to the current moment, to the kind of the era of Black Lives Matter? I suppose. I mean, uh, you know, one of the one of the differences growing up in the South, uh, whether you're white or black, is that um, these problems that are getting more recognition on a, on a wider scale, so nationally and even internationally, you're aware of them maybe much earlier. And so as much as, as these things are in the kind of national conversation, they're in the local conversation already and, and have been for a long time. Um, they're you know, not always dealt with in, in ways that I find appropriate or just, but, um, but one is aware of these difficulties and these controversies early on. So it wasn't necessarily a response to that directly, but I think it is, it is absolutely connected. You know, the idea of the, one of the central ideas for me in the book is looking at the ways, trying to depict the ways that one can draw a straight line from the Civil War, I mean, even to the founding of the country, all the way up to the present that you describe. Was it also partly a reaction to the autobiographical nature of the material in, in Yellow Birds? A challenge to yourself, uh, an idea to do something that was far from your own experience? I, I suppose in a way, yes, but it didn't feel far from my own experience. Because it was so rooted in, in it, where you're from. Right, exactly. I mean, obviously, I... I didn't do the things that these characters do. You know, I'm not a, and I never held people in bondage or anything like that. But I come from a place where that was essential to the functioning of the society. It was just built that way. It was built that way, and many of the places that I know very well and and even have a great amount of affection for a conflicted affection. But but, but you know, I, I love where I'm from, despite all of its uh, its tragic history. So, yeah, I mean, in, in a way, it was a kind of personal reckoning, but I did, I, I suppose it's probably true that I did want to set myself a different kind of project. Because it's not, I mean, you say that you're connected with the place and it's your place, and in some sense you have some sort of connection with that responsibility, but it's not told from the point of view of the people who are, who are owning other people, the people who are cutting off their toes. It's told from the point of the, the people who that was being done to. Was that another sort of challenge? Absolutely. I mean, one of the, you know, there's, there's a long tradition of people in the South writing about the South's tragic history. So, so I suppose in that respect, I, I understand I'm not breaking new ground. But, but many of those stories don't take into account the people who had those things done to them. Their voices are not heard. And so when I'm thinking of how to, you know, when I was thinking of how to conceive of this story that could, you know, in whatever way a, a work of fiction can encapsulate something essential about Virginia, the idea that the voices of, of black Virginians wouldn't be present seemed like it would have been a kind of dereliction. Uh, so that was really important to me to have everybody involved have their say. And was that something that you grounded your characters in research? Did you go and look through archives? Absolutely, and there is a tremendous amount of, of information available. There are first-person narratives that are recorded and written down. During the largest time of the writing, I was living blocks from the Library of Virginia, which is just an extraordinary archive uh, for the history of the place where I'm from. Also, there are in the Depression, um, there was an organization called the Works Progress Administration. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but they sent people out to record the stories, uh, people in the South, people who otherwise 
wouldn't have their stories told. And so you can go online and listen to listen to formerly enslaved people telling the story of their lives. And so, yeah, I really wanted to make sure that I was being responsible in those depictions and, and trying to be as accurate as possible in the real context of the lives that they were living. Given that stretch between some of your characters and yourself, is this a manuscript that you showed to sensitivity readers during the publication process? I, I certainly showed it to friends that I, whose, whose opinions I trusted, who had different perspectives on the subject than I did. I mean, I didn't, I, d- during the sort of official publication process, I don't think that was, that was part of it. But, but I just it, ask, because there's so much controversy these days about the idea that authors should have some sort of input from people who've lived that experience. Well, I mean, no one alive has lived the experience necessarily that I'm writing about. But, but sure, you know, I wanted to make sure that um, it, I, it was convenient in that you know, the first person who I asked to read my stuff, a close friend of mine, I mean, I asked her to read all my stuff. It just happens that she, happens to be that she's a woman of color. So, you know, I would have, whatever I was writing about, she's the first person I send my stuff <laughs> to. But I did feel like it was uh, important to, to make sure that the story wasn't being too influenced by my own innate biases and those kinds of things. So... Yeah, because, I mean, some people suggest that, that there's a problem with the idea that you should get another input because it limits an author. But is, for you, is it a, just a question of getting the job done right? It is, yeah. As I said, I, 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 you know, it's not like I take a survey, but, um, <laughs> but there are a couple of people I really trust and whose input I value. And in, and in some cases, especially people who know you and know your concerns and what you're trying to explore, very often they can... They can see what you're trying to do. And, you know, when you have your nose down in the work for a really long period of time, you can get a sort of tunnel vision. So just that opportunity to step back, reflect on how it's being received by a reader, that's really important to me. And But, you know, ultimately, as the writer, you you decide. Yeah, it's got your name on the front cover. <laughs> exactly, it does. <laughs> it's not all said in the 19th century. It's sort of built out of two intercutting timelines that span all the way up to the 1980s. Did you want to trace the legacy of the Civil War right the way up to the present moment? I did. And, and as we were talking before about how that legacy is still felt in you know contemporary Virginia and America and the world, I didn't want people to read the book and come away from it thinking, Oh, well, that was terrible, but it was so long ago. So having these two timelines uh, bookends for the life of um, this character, George Seldom, I, I, I thought that interweaving them in the way that I do would be an opportunity for, for a reader to reflect on just how, how present some of this stuff is. I mean, you think it's only a couple of generations that it's been out of living memory, people who experience this who are alive and could tell other people. So... You know, in terms of years, yeah, perhaps it's not recent, but in, in you know, certainly in my grandparents' lifetimes, they could have easily encountered people who had once been enslaved. It's not a story that's done yet. That's right, <laughs> yeah. sure. Violence, both of slavery and of war, is, is often shocking in the novel. Did you feel a duty not to sugar the pill? Of course, yeah. I mean, my priority when describing violence, particularly in this book, and as you say, particularly as it relates to the sufferings endured by enslaved people was um, first to never make it gratuitous, to never sensationalize it, and 
absolutely never romanticize it. I think there can be a tendency, you know, we talked about the, this tradition of writing about the South and writing about the legacy of violence. There's, there can be a tendency, you know, mostly on the uh, part of uh, white writers, but um, to kind of treat it as a, as this romantic story where, oh, well, look at how these people suffered, but look how they overcame it. And I think that that can be kind of dangerous. You know, I, I approached it with, you know, I have a certain amount of innate optimism about people, but I wanted to make sure I was testing my optimism honestly. And mm. so, yeah, and so absolutely, I mean, I wanted to, to be honest and direct about what this violence actually looked like in individual people's lives. Because you say that, that your experience of the violence of war in Iraq, in some sense, unlocked the kind of historical violence in your own patch. There's a point in the, in the book where Fitzgerald, your union man, mm-hmm. he suggests that nature only withdraws from exceptional violence. He's riding through and he's sort of seeing nature for the first time since the war began. He suggests there's a kind of difference between that and the more private and quotidian manifestations like uh, the manifestations of slavery, a nighttime whipping in a lamplit barn or a hand snuffing out a desperate cry behind a bedroom's locked door. Do you think there is this kind of difference between those two types of violence? I, I, certainly in people's perception of it. So these particular instances of violence that, that you know, as, as I write in the book, take place in secret on an individual person-to-person basis, I think the larger society finds those kinds of, of instances of violence easier to ignore or e- easier to, um, to justify somehow. To push to one side. To push to one mm-hmm. side, um, absolutely. But war is unavoidable. And, you know, I think ultimately war removes all this kind of the comforting justifications that people, you know, you just can't, well, People have tried, and particularly in the South, people have tried to revise history in that way. But um, but the scale of it is is so different that I think it affects the way people think of themselves. I mean, the trouble that George was born with, you say, was not the kind that can be locked away in a cedar chest and left behind. Do you think that America can ever leave behind the, this trouble with race? That's such a foundational issue. I mean, I think ultimately, yes. I'm afraid I don't know exactly how. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think in the book, the two characters that, that are this part of the storyline that takes place in the 1980s, two people in a relationship together. And it so happens that it's a white man and a, and a woman of color. And they're, they're linked to each other in their histories, um, which the reader will understand, but, but they themselves d- don't know. And fundamental to the relationship and the love that they're able to have is honesty. And for me, the conclusion that I came to is if we are ever going to get not past race, because I don't think, you know, identity is not something that people need to leave behind. I mean, it's an important way that people think about themselves. And, and I think that's fine. And, and that can be very good. But to have uh, race not be the immediate point of contention and, and, and controversy and hardship that it is now, we'll have to have an honest conversation first. And I don't know that we've gotten there yet. Mm. But do you think fiction can play a role in that? I certainly hope so. Kevin Powers with Richard Lee. A Shout in the Ruins is out now with Scepter.
Next week, we cast our eyes across the Costa category winners, speaking with Bart Van Ess about his quiet, meditative memoir of a young girl who hid from the Nazis with his grandparents during World War II. And fresh on the heels of a massive Michelangelo exhibition at the Royal Academy in London, Matthias Anna on his novel, Tell Them of Battles, Kings and Elephants, a what-if novel premised on Michelangelo visiting Ottoman Constantinople. Until then, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And join the discussion on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. So from me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Susanna Trezillian. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.